and you know Dave would just sort of stand, you know, just sort of stare blankly into space, and you know Sam Harris would be like, "It's really, you know, it's like Nazi Germany because blah blah blah," and he's just like, "Wow, it's like Nazi Germany, okay," and and then people would come with you and they go, "These ideas are so important," and. What's interesting is in the process of writing this book, because you have to make it bigger than these people. Like this particular scene and act of self-branding is already almost over and I didn't write the book in time for it to be in the zeitgeist that way. But the arguments that they're using, this is what you're gonna see from every single right-wing movement in the future or center-right movement in the future that does not explicitly identify as nationalist or alt-right. The arguments that they're making about why capitalism just is, that's science, why we're not promoting racism or sexism, but we are very interested in some extremely antiquated ideas about scientific differences, quote unquote, right? So what you're seeing in these arguments, and I'm just gonna bring in two other things because there's a lot to cover here and I can, I can kind of get lost in the weeds. A basic difference I would say between left and right is the difference between historicizing and naturalizing. If you're on the left, broadly speaking, you look at things and you say, what are the historical material reasons why that is happening? If you're on the right, you say that is what it is. Now, paradoxically, this is actually a reason why right now there's a lot of conflict between people who are more socialistic and people who are more like woke, quote unquote, because their moral dimension is better. Look, America as a racist society is correct. Acknowledging that truth versus denying that truth is a major difference, no question. However, if you read Adolf Reed, who's one of my intellectual heroes, I really hope everybody is reading him, he will tell you why racism and white supremacy is a multi-generational project in America that depends on economic conditions, that manifests in different geographies, that is inseparable for how we produce and do capitalism. And actually, it might become separable, right? Whereas some people who have a woke discourse, it just is. It's the religious foundation of America. There's no difference between any different historical periods. It's just this moral block statement. Does that make sense? So some of these critiques can get really subtle. And that's actually what started to occur to me with the IDW and dealing with the right, because these guys were exploiting a lot of weaknesses. They were coming in and they were seeing people you know, look, if, if your pop culture diet and, you're, and, and let's say you're an alienated young man, which is the primary audience for these guys, that's just market demographics, right? not a moral statement. I did some brand work. This is just like you're looking at your, you're looking at your demos. You're alienated. You don't feel powerful. You probably have a lot of actually very valid complaints in your life. You flip open, say, some you know, mediocre, bougie website that you think is the left, and what do you have? Seinfeld's actually problematic, and you suck, and shut the fuck up, and this is a problem, and that's a problem, and this is this, and that, da, da, da. and then Jordan Peterson comes along and goes, no, actually, you're great, and 
You should have a government-provided wife to massage you. Now, and you didn't have people coming and saying, why? Why do you feel like you do? Right? So, because even, even in terms of relative privilege becomes in macro questions. Like in your personal behavior, yes, it's relevant. If you're walking around thinking you're the most victimized person in the world and you're not, it's obnoxious and it's problematic, sure. But in the big picture, nobody outside of an incredible minute fraction of the population is doing better right now. Yes, you can talk about aggregate numbers and people have more washing machines and cell phones and blah, blah, blah. I know all of that. So please do save those questions and comments. Let's, let's go more interesting. But inequality is rising. Alienation from the work you do is rising. Your ability to govern your own life is decreasing radically. And so you had people who were giving reactionary but constructive, proactive answers and also empowering people's individual agency, which is funny as a socialist, I think is super important. We need a socialism that also has room for people's personal aspirations and ambitions and sense of making room for themselves in the world. We cannot make that wrong. And in fact, the only people that I really see making that wrong are usually very upper middle class bougie people. And I don't make that as like a moral comment. I'm talking like literally that's their position. They don't have to do that. You know, I could tell you as someone, and I don't, you know, I don't want to melodrama my own experience, but it's like, you know, I know what it's like to be pretty broke at times and have like the heat turned off or whatever. So you understand why you might want to read some type of Horatio Alger narrative, right? So the IDW had answers and the right had answers and the left had a lot of the quote unquote left had a lot of moralism and condemnation and not even that much nutrition. I think that is why, among many other things, including the really powerful social movements we have in the world today, um, and the very important ones on race and economic equity and so on, this is actually also why Bernie Sanders matters. All right. Uh, that is a... Um clip uh, that I wanted to play during the, uh, the main show on uh, Monday, uh, but uh, we, we just didn't get to it. We're having some technical difficulties, uh, and I played a couple more in the game for patrons. That's not when we got to, but honestly, um, you know, it might be one of my all-time favorite Michael clip. That's from uh, the the lecture he gave at Lafayette College, basically just before the world lockdown last year. Um, and you know, I, I've obviously been on a huge um, kick with this stuff because you know, I was preparing clips for um, you know preparing clips for uh, for the show on uh, on Monday and. You know, I'd, obviously that, you know, that was in some ways incredibly painful to do to get the, the clips ready for that, that tribute. Um, you know, and in general, I will, I will say, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a very rough year and, uh, and this kind of, you know, the, the knowledge that Michael's gone has, has been like this kind of toxic black sludge you know that's kind of there all the time and you know 
watching all those clips for the tribute show kind of made me, you know, um, sort of forced me to wallow in it a little bit, you know, and, and the grief has definitely been hidden in it in a uh, different way the last few days. Uh, but uh, I think it's also been healthy. Um, but, but that, you know, going back to, uh, going back to politics, uh, that, that clip just now that we just watched uh, is, is one of my all time favorite uh you know, like the whole lecture is fantastic, but that little section on the difference between socialism and woke liberalism, uh, it, it, the whole thing is just, you know, Italian chef's kiss. Uh, and, uh, and, and I really wish I could like, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I like, there's so many people that, um, that I get frustrated with. I just wish that I could get them like the, uh, Alex and Clockwork Orange, you know, kind of strap their eyes open and make them watch that thing on a loop until they've, you know, absorbed what he's saying there because it's so important and it's so well said and it's such a, uh, it's such an accessible and clear and 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 kind of uh, morally focused version of of something really really important. Um, and and it it gives you some window into into what he was you know what he was thinking where his um, uh you know where his head uh, was at you know those last few months of his life uh, you know we talked about that a little bit uh, at the very end of the show the main show on uh, on Monday uh, yes absolutely I love that uh, so in the um, in the Q and a, the whole Q and a is a masterclass in like how to, to talk to people if you want, you know, like, cause uh, he's getting so many questions in the Q and a that are like kind of annoying college Democrat kinds of questions. And, you know, I've talked about this before on the show it would have been so easy for somebody certainly with Michael's, you know, um, charisma and comedy skills and intelligence to, uh, to just kind of, have some fun owning these kids who are asking these kind of annoying college Democrat questions. Uh, but, um, but he doesn't do that. Right. Uh, instead he gives these like really earnest, really good, sharp answers where you can tell that it really matters to him that he's kind of meeting these students where they're at ideologically and explaining his thinking in ways that are going to connect in a meaningful way to how they see the world. Uh, he's just an um, incredible political communicator. I mean, we really don't have anybody like that on the left. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, um, so it's, it's very good. I mean, like, like just a really perfect example of, you know, stop trying, at least we're talking about people on the grassroots, not like annoying pundits and politicians, you know, but like, uh, winnable people, you know, uh, at least when it comes to them, you know, uh, stop trying to own the libs and start trying to radicalize the libs. And that's what he's doing there. Uh, and the one time it slips a little bit is when the student asks him if he's, uh, if he's Jewish and he's like, that's a, it's kind of a funny question. And, uh, yeah, I have some Jewish heritage. What, why do you ask? And, uh, the guy says, oh, well, why are you so anti-Israel? And he says, well, my, my Jewish values uh, teach me to oppose apartheid, which was a perfect answer. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that there is a way that, like, this, the sort of imperatives of compassion and of, of kind of approaching other people 
as as humans and 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 you know treating them respectfully and you know sort of trying to have human interaction be the way that we think it should have really do converge with the imperatives of good political communication and radicalizing people and you know winning the class war and all that stuff like like the the two the two actually are kind of rowing in the same direction there um you know, because most people are much less likely to be persuaded by people they perceive as annoying, pompous assholes, you know, which is sounds very simple when you say it. But again, I think a lot of people on the left have trouble remembering that or internalizing it. Um, there's a uh, there's a good, uh, which actually reminds me, uh, there's a review that just came out the other day in this Eastern European socialist magazine, uh, The Barricade. Uh, I had an article there last year and I've been interviewed on there a couple times and uh, Maria Senate, I uh, hope I'm saying that correctly, um, reviewed uh, my new book in there. Uh, so there's, there's that, right? So that's the, uh, the barricade uh, dot online. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a critical review in some ways, you know, she does disagree with me on certain points. So I'm going to go back on there. I'm sure we'll have a good discussion about it. But uh, the thing, uh, but the one of the reasons I was thinking about it in this connection is that there is a there's a good line in uh, in her review where she's talking about like a conversation she'd been having with her you know much more conservative parents and she was kind of like lambasting them for their political background you know backwardness and her husband told her you know babe you know it's not like you were born as a marxist right remember how difficult your process of political education was why is it that you expect them to be convinced of everything after one 20 minute argument she was like oh yeah that's a good point isn't it uh so uh so yeah do do check that out uh, at the barricade uh so like i was saying i i think that that clip from the the lafayette college uh speech um and you know, I mean, it's it's certainly Michael at his very best as a political communicator, and you know, kind of trying to get across some some very um, complicated ideas, the things that you know, like he, he references Adolf Reed and anti-essentialism, uh, talk, you know, all this big stuff about race and class and socialism, uh, but uh, but doing it in a very accessible way, doing it in a, in a way that makes all this seem like fun and interesting and, and, uh, uh, and yeah, and is, is designed to connect to people who don't necessarily start out on all these pages, you know, so that that's fantastic in and of itself, but also, you know, his, his critique um, in that, that Lafayette college, um, you know, address of, of, you know, woke liberalism and all of that, is is just very good i mean it's, it's it's very sharp and and um you know and and i i like i mean just in terms of the content uh i like it a lot uh and uh as i was watching it you know reminded me you know i've been thinking about some of you know some of the things that uh you know that he wrote you know in uh that you know that weren't published uh one of those i actually managed to get published in jacobin yesterday I was kind of remembering it, um, you know, when I was preparing the memorial show on uh, on Monday, and uh, and I and I kind of got back to thinking about it then, uh, and and I realized I had like a the final draft of this article in my Gmail inbox because uh, he was you know he was sending me um, 
you know, he was, uh, he was sending me drafts of this article um, in August, like beginning of August, 2019, you know, so it was almost two years ago. Uh, he had been commissioned to write this article for Esquire magazine and um, they didn't end up publishing it. You know, I think they they thought better of it. I don't know. I, I, my, I, I only know his summary of, of that conversation. I don't know why they ended up deciding not to run it. I kind of suspect that it was more stridently socialist and more, more critical of the Democrats and, you know, and more ideological, you know, than, than they, they thought it would be, you know, when they asked him to write it. Uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, like I said, that's, that's just my best guess based on what I can remember of what he told me about that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, when he was working on it, you know, we, we talked about it for a while, like we did with a lot of his writing, you know, at that time. And he was sending me drafts so I could, you know, do some editing on it and give him comments. And, um, and I remember cause I was, I was driving to Atlanta. Uh, it was sort of in the middle of the process of my wife and I moving to Georgia and, um, like we'd been there together and dropped some of our stuff off. And then we went back to like stay with my family for a bit in, in Michigan. And for some reason I was making a solo trip to, to Georgia, I think to, uh, I don't even remember what it was that I had to do, but I mean, I was, I was sort of going back there to, you know, to get some stuff taken care of. And then I went back to Michigan. Then we went back together. And I remember Michael was sending me the drafts of this Esquire article. And, and I was excited enough about it that I'd, um, Every time, you know, he'd send me a new one, I'd, I'd pull into a rest stop and read it on my phone and send him comments back. And um, and so as I was remembering this piece, as I was getting ready uh, for the uh, memorial, you know, one-year memorial show on uh, on Monday, and um, and I, I forwarded it to Bhaskar Sankara, the, the editor of Jacobin, and he... Um, you know, he talked to, to Michael's family, you know, his, his sister and his mom and, uh, and they, uh, and they okayed it. And, you know, and, um, you know, Bhaskar ran that in Jacobin last night with a little note from me at the beginning, you know, kind of give the context, you know, for what it was as, as a tribute to him, you know, on one year uh, anniversary. Uh, so that article uh, is, um, well, the, the title uh, the Bosco gave a Jacobin is uh, Michael Brooks on why the war on the poor. Um, and, uh, and it's a, it's a really worthwhile, yeah, there's a little note from me and, you know, a little uh, fundraising appeal for, you know, for Alicia's uh, show uh, and uh, that they put in after that. And then um, the, uh, and then the article that, that Michael originally wrote for, uh, uh, for Esquire, uh, and, um, and it's a really, it's a really good piece. It's powerful. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, the immediate kind of news hook, which is obviously a couple of years out of date, but, you know, the immediate, um, you know, the immediate news hook was about Trump proposing cuts to, uh, to, to snap, you know, subs, supplemental you know, nutritional assistance program. And, um, but it's, it's personal in a way that none of his other political writing was, um, you know, and maybe you've written more stuff like this, you know, as, as, as time went on, you know, but uh, it's, um, 
you know, he, he kind of starts out I was on Wilbros today. I don't know when the episode's coming out, but uh, I, I was talking to, to Waz about this. Uh, you know, he talks about like the experience of being a kid and, you know, dealing with evictions and kind of, you know, being 13 or 14, you know, it says the age you start to notice things you never noticed before. And he kind of noticed the way that his mom would look both ways at the grocery store before she pulled out their bridge card to, uh, to pay for the groceries. Uh, and you know, the kind of that, that stigma, you know, around, around poverty. And, and it's, it's a really, it's, it's both very smart politically in, you know, ways that you think it would be, but it's also, again, much more personal, you know, than, than most of us writing about this stuff was, uh, and, um, and of course I've also, um, I've also spent some time thinking as I've, as I've been kind of going through, you know, some of this writing, uh, about, um, uh, oh, by the way, I saw there was a chat question kind of going back to what he, his sort of half jokey, you know, example in the clip about the Seinfeld is problematic, uh, articles. And, uh, and I think, you know, the point is not that there's no progressive media criticism that might be good or worthwhile. It's just that that kind of like simplistic moralistic version of progressive media criticism is probably both bad and silly as, as art criticism because moralists are always bad art, art critics because they want to flatten everything and put things in clearly defined categories of good and bad and, you know, and, and really focus on the, uh, the morality of it. Uh, but, but also it's, it's politically counterproductive, you know, it makes us look like overgrown hall monitors. Uh, but in any case, uh, as I was going through this, um, you know, this is the, um, yeah, he would often talk about it on the show, but I, this is the only place at least I know of or I can think off off the top of my head where he talked about it in writing. Um, but uh, but yeah, so as, as I was kind of going through uh, some of this stuff and thinking about it, you know, I uh, was thinking about something that he wrote uh, just before he died. Like, I think maybe literally that weekend. Um you know, before he, before he died, uh, certainly not more than a few days. Uh, and he, he sent it to, uh, he sent it to Daniel Bessner, uh, for, for comment, kind of the way sometimes sent things to me or David Griscom. And, um, I think Bessner, I don't know if he'd even had a chance to write back yet, you know, at, at that time. And, um, you know, it's, it's not, Um, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I had a, <laughs> um, I had to do some dental work this, uh, this afternoon and my, my mouth kind of hurts, but, uh, in any case, um, yeah, I like, I like that. Um, that, that is very true. Um, but in any case, this this fragment that he'd written that he'd sent to Bessner just before he died, uh, I think it was part of like maybe a proposal for an idea he was kicking around for a book. Um, I'm not really sure. I you know um, I think Bhaskar sent it to me. You know, in the in the kind of days immediately after to sort of see if I knew anything about it, which I really didn't, and. Um, I asked Bessner and David Griska, either of them, 
really knew anything about it or where Michael was going with it. Uh, but it's also really interesting, you know, along the um, the same lines, you know, not not so much the personal aspect, but like some of the political critique in that that lecture. And the first couple, I'm going to read at least the first couple paragraphs, maybe the rest too. I don't know, but um, but the first couple paragraphs, you know, certainly are the ones that overlap the most uh, with my interests. And I, I found, uh, you know, and, and I thought it was just a really um, you know, vivid uh, piece of of writing that really kind of takes you back to some of what uh, last summer was like, uh, and and as it gives you a sense of where his head was at last summer, and and also I think there's just like a good sort of solid like again it's something that I think he was like I said actually in this article right that in the screen share the cosmopolitan socialism of Michael Brooks, which I was showing because. In that article, I quote, uh, you know, I quote a little bit of what I'm about to read. Um, you know, they, we put this out in Jacobin on what would have been his 37th birthday uh, last August. And um, in that, um, yeah, so I, you know, in that article, I kind of make a point of saying, look, I know, um, I have no idea, you know, what Michael's like evolution would have been, you know, politically, if he'd lived for another like five years, say, I don't think he would have changed anything necessarily by now, you know, a year later, but like in five years, I don't know how he might've continued to evolve. You know, the man had, had a restless mind. He was always reading new things and interviewing new people and trying to synthesize new perspectives and it's entirely possible, you know, that he would change his mind on this or that. You know, he'd certainly evolved politically plenty in the few years before that. So who knows? No idea, right? But the reason that I think it's important to kind of get out there some of what he was saying and thinking and writing, um, you know, during those last months of his life uh, is, well, there are really two reasons. So one of them is... Uh, you know, in a very small way, but, you know, it's still important to me. It, it feels like a way to honor him to, to kind of, you know, to, to sort of propound his, his ideas, you know, as, as, as they had like formed at that point, you know, uh, in, in those last months uh, along the same lines, by the way, I should say, I'm writing an introduction to uh, Matt McManus's new book, uh, which is all about cosmopolitan socialism and has lots of stuff about Michael in it. Um, but um the other reason, you know, besides the the personal reason, which would be good enough, you know, certainly as far as I'm concerned, is politically, I mean, you know, obviously this is a matter of judgment and your mileage may vary, but in my judgment, you know, I think he was right about just about all this stuff. And there's a really important critique in some of what he was saying, you know, in this last few months. So uh, this, this is how, um, this is how it starts. Uh, might actually, yeah. So, um, 2020 is hot, brutal even. The familiar story, a pandemic that stretches across the globe, economic depression deepens around already uh, profound fractures of wealth, class, and basic ability to live. 
the 2012 to 2029, well, he means 2020, the 2012 to 2020 resurgence of the social democratic left has been defeated with some honorable exceptions at the national level in the United States and uprisings on the streets against the vicious and racist realities of American policing have morphed into a new hyper round of grotesque woke identitarian politics and a new massive grift opportunity for the diversity industry. Serious, I think he means conversations, serious conversations of economic justice, reinventing policing and secure and securely and substantively expanding the sixties rights revolution, get the back burner compared to efforts at personal destruction and brand strategy. In fact, this has been the ultimate nature of the modern hashtag social movements like me too, a culture of wit of stitching which hunts and cruelty substitutes for genuine and actual change. Uh, this all sounds very IDW. Ironically, my first book was a critique of this reactionary tendency, and I'm not here to backtrack. Uh, then he has in parentheses, although I'm burned out on polemics, even in critique, I want to be more mindful of my speech. Uh, and then it goes on. I'm, I'm here to say that modern left and liberal culture is validating the often superficial IDW discourses. I still want us to historicize, create truly democratic and compassion-driven society. I think the IDW toolkit is not at all up for that challenge. But they have been more right that I would like to acknowledge about a cruel and totalitarian drift on the left. Of course, there is one-sidedness, lack of historical knowledge, and unwillingness to engage with the substantive left. Adolf Reed could have set all these guys straight in a day. Uh, and I just want to pause to say that I love his image of like, you know, reading that line, you know, Adolf Reed could have set all these guys straight in a day. I'm, I'm just kind of getting an image of um, Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and, you know, tiny Ben Shapiro uh, sort of sitting in a row, like, like, uh, like, like, you know, I don't know, uh, students in an old fashioned boarding school, you know, who are, you know, who, who are being chewed out by the headmaster or something. Well, well, Adolf Reed, you know, sets them all straight, you know, about politics and history. Uh, so anyway, uh, where are we? Adolf Reed could have set all these guys straight in a day. Oh, okay. Let me go back to the beginning of the sentence. So of course there's one sidedness, lack of historical knowledge and unwillingness to engage with the substantive left. Adolf Reed could have set all these guys straight in a day mirrors and reflects what they critique. What we need is an actual open, compassionate, and functional culture that ensures freedom, expands to all domains, expands it to all domains, embraces complexity, and delivers real foundational needs to all. We need a synthesis to get there. Uh, and, um, and then... Um, in the remaining, uh, okay, well, well, here, let me just read one more, one more paragraph at least. He says, I want to propose a Marxist-influenced and shaped anti-essentialism as developed by Adolf Reed Jr. as one side of what we need. We need urgently to get to the historical and material base of all the wretched conditions we're in. This is anything but, quote, reductionist, unquote, but it does provide depth. In a political culture subsumed on all sides, but easy and lazy, moralistic essentialism, sorry, in a political culture subsumed on all sides, I think this is supposed to be by easy and lazy moralistic essentialism, this work demands grounding in a serious commitment to an actual countervailing source of power to capital. So, um, 
that's uh, that's the um, yeah. So that that's the part that I you know obviously resonated the most to me. I'll just read the last few sentences. I'm almost done anyway now, and you know I'm not quite sure how all these things were you know were supposed to fit together. Like I said, unfortunately, I do not know where Michael was going with some of this, but. Um, but I'll, anyway, I'll just I'll just read the rest of it, you know. So we might as well at this point. Uh, here's where where it gets woo woo. Uh, I don't something. It's just that anti essentialism is the finest political tradition we have. It explains our social subjective and objective politics the best. But we and our subjectiveness are still interacting with these structures. Follow from Gramsci to Ken Wilber. We need an integral approach. We need answers to personal meaning, atomization and psychological and spiritual sickness that we are all floating in. In short, we need an approach to inner growth to match outer capacity. I'm writing this with great clarity and great fear. I feel in the last few years, I've finally reached some form of adulthood through serious inner work. As a minor public figure, today's culture feels like living in an episode of Black Mirror. I'd forgotten that line. That's good. Uh, seconded. <laughs> I'm deeply imperfect and have made many mistakes. We all need to start owning this in order to something for a process of actual transformation, regeneration, not destruction. And then the uh, the last sentence, which I have no idea. Again, it, it seems very abrupt. Obviously, this was just the very beginning of a work in progress. Is uh, But what does all this have to do with China? Unfortunately, I do not know. I don't know what the China connection was supposed to be at the... Um, at the, you know, after that passage. Uh, but, um, you know, there you go. Uh, this, like I said, I think that's, that's the last thing that he, uh, that he ever wrote. And it's, again, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, there's so much there and, and I don't know how all the threads connect. I don't know what the China connection was supposed to be, what he was going to say about that. But um, but there's so much good stuff in there. I mean, there there are just so many gems in this few paragraphs. I really wish you'd had a chance to develop those thoughts. Uh, but um, in any case, uh, yeah. All right. Ask me questions. This is supposed to be a Q&A stream. So uh, ask me some questions in the chat and we can, and we can switch gears and, uh, and do that. Oh, oh, this is a big one. It's an interesting one. Um, well, okay. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to wait on that. I'm, I'm going to answer the question, that question in a second. Uh, but first, I just want to highlight what Eric is here. Um, pretty surprised how critical he is, the American left. Uh, him being around would have been of great help to folks of good instinct. Yeah, I mean, um, probably less so to me, to be honest, because a lot of the stuff is stuff he'd been saying in private fear, you know, but, um, or certainly at least, you know, since I'd, yeah, for years, you know, uh, but um, I think um, you know, I, I, I'm not too, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, to me, it was all just kind of part of, you know, his, his thing. That's like, yeah, I mean, Michael's 
criticisms to the left were, were very much of a piece with the rest of his worldview and, you know, it all kind of flowed together pretty naturally. But I also understand that it was something he was only really starting to, to, um, I mean, you know, you can find old like clips from the majority report, you know, from like 2017 where he's criticizing what, what was then called call out culture. Um, so it's not like he'd never given voice to some of these criticisms before, but I think he was starting to be to sort of advance some of these more strident critiques of, you know, kind of the pathologies of the left and, you know, wokeness and cancel culture and all that stuff uh, in a different way in the last few months, you know, but certainly, you know, knowing him, it, it's all stuff. I mean, a lot of my views on that stuff, honestly, are at least as much a matter of him influencing me as the other way around, probably much more him influencing me than the other way around. Um, and yeah, this is something I have thought about constantly. I mean, just the way that, you know, we, so many people on, in left media have been just clawing each other's eyes out over oftentimes very minor tactical disagreements or, you know, accusing each other of being, you know, I don't know, CIA shills or Russian, whatever, you know, like, like he would have hated every moment of that. I mean, whatever you think about what he would have thought about any individual controversy. And the only honest thing to say about any of that is we're never going to know. And that's awful, but we're not. Um, I think one thing you can know for absolutely fucking sure is that he would have hated the toxicity of it, you know, just, just the emotionally stunted, intellectually stunted, just, just horrible way that people have been having these conversations. I mean, you contrast that with, yeah, I mean, I know he would do the occasional like bit where he's like dunking on, on Jimmy Dore for being a dumbass or whatever. But like, if you, with that exception, right. You know, every time, you know, every time he was doing, you know, he talked in that fragment I read about trying to be more mindful, even in critique, but honestly, at least when it was intra left critique, he was already extremely mindful. You watch any of the segments that he did where he's criticizing certain things that certain people on the left thought, you know, he, Nathan Robinson, who's going to be a guest on the show on Monday, uh, you know, for our, our uh, Ben Shapiro's wrong about everything episode along with Gene Bajalan, uh, you know, and, and, and as somebody who was on TMBS, but, you know, Michael did a segment criticizing, you know, some of Nathan's views, uh, I think in like June or May of, I think that's right. One of those, you know, May, June, July, uh, one of those months in 2020. Uh, and I think, and I remember Nathan saying that he liked the segment, you know, cause, cause he thought that, uh, you know, he could tell that, uh, you know, Michael had listened carefully to what he had to say. And even though he wasn't convinced and he was pushing back on certain points, he was in his argument seriously. And Michael was always like that, you know, when he was doing intro left critique or almost always, certainly. Um, let's see. Uh, all right. If we have super chats, we'll, we'll advance those to the front of the line, but first, uh, let's see. Uh, so yes. Um, no, uh, no, please don't think that's over. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, even if you, you don't, I mean, I think all this stuff is really good. I mean, obviously, you know, he was a good friend of mine and, and a lot of this is coming from that angle for me, but like, you know, it's all on YouTube, right? You know, every every episode of TMBS, the Majority Report, and you know, and, and I think even if he's not somebody whose whose work you were following when he's alive, it, it is worth it's worth watching all that stuff now. That's I guess that's what I would say about that. Um, 
uh, I don't know. Feels a little weird to me, although you know he might have liked it. You know, so I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, let's see. Um, all right, that's a hot one. I'm gonna go back to the one I skipped earlier. Uh, so yeah. Okay, Ben uh, Darius Hannon asks, uh, "How much closer did Michael pull you towards Buddhism or at least spiritualism?" yeah that one's tricky um because i'm not any of those things certainly um and you know i'm you know i'm somebody who um unlike michael right i mean michael i guess was would have called himself an agnostic, but like a, an agnostic with spiritual interests and, and certainly a strong affinity, you know, allegiance, I guess, to Buddhism. Uh, not that you have to be a theist to be, you know, you, but you know what I'm saying, right. You know, but, but I'm somebody who was comfortable and is comfortable, you know, calling himself a, um, you know, a, uh, an atheist and, and, you know, I'm somebody, uh, you know, Certainly my views on, you know, what you might call metaphysics, um, both in the narrow sense of how we use that word in analytic philosophy and also maybe in the uh, the, the metaphysics section of Barnes & Noble sense of metaphysics uh, are, are pretty, um, you know, I mean, I'm a materialist, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't think there are any gods. I don't think there are, you know, I don't believe in, you know, reincarnation or, you know, anything like that really right i mean i'm not saying that in some kind of swaggering way uh there are definitely a lot of days last year i wish i did believe in some of that stuff but i but i don't right um and uh it's and you know that was definitely a, a point of divergence you know between us i mean like that that first weekend you know when i met him and, you know in idaho we um uh you know we got in into that just a, just a very little bit, you know? Um, and I don't know. I remember being over at his apartment, uh, in Brooklyn. I think it was, I think it was when my, my first book had just like, uh, I mean, he, he'd read it, you know, already, you know, from the, um, I mean, I think I, before the galleys were even ready, I think I sent him some version of it and he, he read it back then, you know, but, um, I remember he was happy that I mentioned his show at the, uh, at the beginning, but, uh, but I think I just got my like author copies and, um, and I gave him one. Um, and, uh, I think that's the, I think that's the afternoon I'm remembering. And we talked about this a little bit then, uh, because, um, you know, we, we sort of, I remember having a, a trying to think how to summarize this conversation, but it was something along the lines of uh, Joshua Con Russell, who, who was on the post game for patrons on, on Monday night. I like Joshua a lot, you know, and I think I actually told him that in the post game. So I guess this is okay to, to say, uh, you know, I, I think he'd, he'd been on the show shortly after I was. And uh, I don't even remember exactly what the sentence was, but he'd had, there was something he said where it's like, the subject of the sentence was the universe. You know, it's like the universe is sending us this or that. And I remember 
you know, kind of making a snarky comment to him about it. Like, you know, it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know what the fuck that means. The universe did that, right? How did the universe do that? And, you know, and he, and, uh, you know, he didn't exactly argue about it, but he was like, you know, he did that Michael thing he was very good at where, where he sort of made you feel a little bit uncool for, you know, for not being on the same page as him. Uh, and, um, yeah, um, it's, it's a very, you know, like even when on the show, right. Like one of the, those clips that I, you know, this was not the only time, but it was one of them, uh, that, but, you know, I think the first clip from the, you know, uh, when I, when I met Bhaskar that, you know, on, on TMBS, um, that, that appearance, um, you know, that clip where, where Michael's razzing me about astrology, which he did several times, you know, I, I think that like I was saying in the post game on Monday, I don't think Michael literally believed in astrology, but I think that that was a, um, I think that was a kind of jokey thing that stood in for something real, right? Like I think what it stood in for the, you know, teasing me about being dismissive of astrology, you know, like what it stood in for, even if he didn't literally believe in astrology was a sort of general lack of openness towards some sort of spiritual dimension of, I don't know. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how, like, I mean, I'm not a, I mean, I've always kind of had a weird relationship uh, to, to some of that stuff in the sense that I very much don't believe any of it, but, um, but I'm also like, even back during the new atheism period, I was never a, like a new atheist uh not really i think um that i mean i certainly remember like back when that was still very much in the air having some of these criticisms then because it never really made sense to me to think that because somebody agrees with me about metaphysics that therefore i'm like some sort of on some moral or political level they're my ally that always seems silly to me um and and i certainly agree with what michael says and against the web about you know, cosmopolitan socialism and, you know, basically to simplify a little bit, if, if, um, you know, we could all agree to disagree about metaphysics, as long as we, nobody tries to impose their, you know, religious views on each other and we could all fight for a more just society together. And, and that's always, you know, more or less been my feeling, right? I mean, I, I kind of have a soft spot for, for Christian socialists, even, you know, people like Cornell West and, um, uh, and, you know, Terry Eagleton, you know, a lot of the sort of, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the priests and nuns that the CIA murdered and, you know, death squads murdered in Latin America in the eighties or, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm, um, I'm married to a, uh, to a progressive Christian, you know, but, um, as far as my own views about that, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to start believing in like souls or reincarnation or any of that stuff anytime soon. Um, but, uh, um, is there something about Buddhism or is there something about a certain kind of like spiritual worldview that puts people in touch with a certain kind of emotional perspective about the world and about other people that is really valuable and that oftentimes the left could use a lot more of? Absolutely, yes. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that's probably about as much of an answer as I can give you right now.
Uh, oh, and thank you so much for the uh, the super sticker. I really appreciate it. Let's see. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, sticking with sticking with the Michael topic, uh, I I like. Um, <laughs> I remember there was one time when I was doing the show, you know, in, in studio, you know, pre COVID and uh, we were watching a clip of Cornell West. I've, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Um, we were watching a clip of Cornell West and an event in South Carolina where he, um, uh, where he, um, you know, he was talking about Bernie Sanders, and you know, this is during the primary, and he refers to him. I, I know I don't do a good Cornell West impression, but I'm going to do it anyway as, you know, this magnificent vanilla brother, Bernie Sanders. And I, I remember telling Michael that, you know, that my goal in life was was uh, <laughs> just once I want I want Cornell West to refer to me as this magnificent vanilla brother, Ben Burgess. Um but uh, he did, you know, I mean, Michael sort of got that himself, um, you know, long after that. I think I think this was during the pandemic. Uh, he uh, he had. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, he uh, when Cornell West was on TMBS, uh, West referred to against the web as a magnificent text. So uh, I know Michael liked that. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I mean, that's probably true. Silver, you know, silver Harlow says, even without souls and reincarnation, there's something to be said for meditation and calming the mind. Yeah. I wouldn't know from experience, but God, I think I've admitted that I have not been in a good place the last year for a variety of reasons. I could probably, you know, it probably would not hurt me to try that. Um, yeah, I, I would, I would give that a chance. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, see at least two good. Oh, actually, so sticking with the spiritual stuff, uh, Sean Moon asks if I've read Michael Lerner's book, The Left Hand of God. I have not read that one, although I actually have read quite a bit of, of Michael Lerner's other stuff. Uh, I used to be like, you know, when I was... Yeah, I think this is a first for this stream. I don't believe I've ever talked about this on YouTube before. Uh, when I was like in college, you know, there was there was a period of, of time when I was in college and I kind of dropped out of college for a little while. I, you know, worked at a kosher grocery store for a little while. I worked at a Panera for a little while, you know, a couple, you know, a couple other things. And um, I did and um you know, I was very sort of did a lot of reading kind of along the way to becoming a philosophy major when I went back to, to finish college, uh, transferred again. But, um, but I was very interested in sort of reconnecting with, with the, the, or, you know, connecting really, you know, uh, with the, um, the sort of Jewish side of my, my background. And, um, even though, 
even then I kind of had some of these materialist inclinations, but I was kind of trying to figure out if there's some way to square that circle. And there's some super duper liberal hippie theology that, you know, that, that I could, I could, you know, get behind that would, uh, you know, lead me to be able to actually, you know, to, to actually embrace, you know, Judaism as a religion. And, um, and so I read a lot of Cornell West in that period. And, you know, even though I did ultimately come out of the whole thing as an atheist, eventually, um, it's, you know, which is kind of where it started, but, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I, I, I admire some of that writing. I actually remember, uh, some of a book that, uh, about like black Jewish relations that, that, uh, Lerner wrote with Cornell West, if I'm remembering right. I remember read that book like a million years ago, but yeah, I've read quite a bit of, of Michael Lerner, you know, I mean, he's, he's an interesting, you know, I don't agree with him about everything. I think there's still a sort of certainly politically, uh, on the Middle East, I think there's still a kind of, you know, left Zionism there that I, you know, it, it's definitely the best version of it, but I, I still reject that, you know, root and branch. I'm, I'm a single democratic secular state, you know, uh, for, for Jews and Palestinians and everybody else guy. But, um, but yeah, he's an interesting writer. I've not read that one though. All right. Uh, no idea what this is about, but that sounds horrifying. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I am not. <laughs> Just in case we put this out on the podcast feed, the, uh, the it's uh, our our good our good friend and. Uh, uh, regular guest uh, Ryan Lake says, "Don't use the Sam Harris meditation app. It will turn you into an incompatibilist. If you don't know what incompatibilism is, don't worry about it. It's a philosophy joke." But um, yeah, uh, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, let's see. Okay, so uh, let's get into. Um, oh God, you know, I think I read some of that it, it seemed you know <laughs> i remember um this get this very off topic but bear with me uh in 2012 maybe when Rand paul was first running for the senate i remember this uh, the uh, reading after paul's uh notorious appearance in the rachel maddow show where he said he would have voted against the civil rights act because it told private business owners what to do uh Alexander Coburn had a column and uh, a counterpunch called the Rand and Rachel show where he has the sort of paragraph taking apart Paul's appearance. Uh, and the, the last sentence of the paragraph is uh, he seems dumb. And uh, as far as what relationship that might have to Michael Eric Dyson's takedown of Cornell West, you know, I will leave that as they sometimes say in academic philosophy papers as an exercise for the reader. Um, let's see. Yep, that it was. Okay, there was a question. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, that I was going to put off while I talked about the spiritual stuff. If I can find it now. Here we go. 255 AD said, what did, what did Michael mean when he talked about the authoritarian tendencies in the left? No offense, but a lot of pseudo-left grifters start out with rhetoric that sounded like that. Yeah, so, I mean, he even kind of addresses that in the in the passage, right. You know, he says, I know some of this might sound IDW, right. Uh, and, and he, uh, he says there's more truth to some of what the IDW says, 
about you know the left than he would sometimes like to admit. Um, but I don't think that I absolutely don't think that he was going in any sort of direction like that. I think that um, I think that a better way to understand it is to put it in in the context of what he says in uh, the chapter of Against the Web, uh, where he's, and do I have a copy of Against the Web up here? Nope, I don't. It's in Hoden Lake. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, but anyway, there's, there's, a, there's a great bit in Against the Web book everybody should read if they haven't, um, which, uh, where he, he says... Um, sorry, I just lost the thread for a second. Uh, where you know, where he talks, you know, like it's in the context of his critique of the IDW, and and he talks about how oftentimes the ways that progressives try to push back against against the IDW types actually make them stronger uh that 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 it actually adds more fuel you know because it, it reinforces the image they're trying to project of of the left you know that the classic example is we would never have to hear any of brett weinstein's opinion if those students at evergreen college had left him alone uh and you know which is always by the way i mean i think i'm probably a little bit more strident on this point even than michael was but um this is why like one of the reasons why deplatforming is dumb as shit, you know, like the, we tell ourselves all these stories about how, oh, say deplatforming works because, you know, Milo went away. And what about when Richard Spencer was punched? And guys, Richard Spencer never had a base. They, like that conference, you know, right after Trump was, you know, elected or inaugurated, uh, where, where Richard Spencer first became famous, there were like maybe a hundred people at that thing. Uh, at Charlottesville, that was like all of those assholes from all around the country. And there were like, what, a few hundred of them. Um, that's, you know, Richard Spencer had a minute where he was, he did a lot of the rounds, of the media, they'd have him on CNN. as like a kind of novelty, like circus act. Look at this polite, you know, articulate, well-groomed Nazi. Uh, but, uh, the whole, the whole reason he could be punched and the universal reaction was to find it funny is because he had no base of support, right? I mean, if, if uh, I mean, if, I don't even know, if, if Jordan Peterson, you know, was punched in the face, uh, that would not play well, right, for, for Peterson's left critics. Uh, if, um, even if, even if somebody like Steve Bannon, you know, who I, I think is, is a, you know, very disgusting guy, you know, but even if somebody like Steve Bannon was punched, it would not have played out the same way. The fact that everybody thought it was funny when, when Richard Spencer is punched shows that Richard Spencer was always super duper marginal to start out with. And Milo didn't go away because the left deplatformed him. Milo's career was built by the left trying to deplatform him. Uh, that was the whole point. That was, that was, that was his shtick. You know, look at, you know, I mean, he literally called it the dangerous ideas tour. Like, look, my ideas are so dangerous that there are these riots, you know, when I try to, I try to have a, um, uh, I try to have a, um, I have a uh, speaking engagement. 
Uh, Milo went away not because of anything we did to stop him. Milo went away because the conservative movement dropped him after his comments about age of consent. Uh, that's when he was disinvited from 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 CPAC. Uh, that's that's when he he lost his book deal, and then like he was so thoroughly disgraced at that point that he's had to reinvent himself. I mean. I tend to think the word grifter is wildly overused. Sometimes we just use that like as basically to mean person we don't like, person we disagree with. But, you know, Milo really is like a classic 19th century grifter. Like, you know, might as well be going from town to town selling people monorails. And uh, and he had, uh, you know, he was... You know, he was, uh, and he was so thoroughly disgraced that to continue to grift, you know, he had to... Um, uh, he had to reinvent himself as bored again, which is hilarious because like his, like before his whole thing was, Oh, he's a, con you know, he's a conservative, but he's also this like super outrageous, you know, coarse gay guy. Who's going to like, you know, talk about how much he loves, you know, black cock and stuff like that. But, uh, uh, but now, <laughs> you know, he's reinvented himself is selling himself to these homophobic Christian conservatives. So now he's, he's pretending that he's not gay anymore. And, uh, and, you know, even though he's still living with his husband, he says his husband is now just his roommate. Uh, and uh, dogs don't bark at him anymore because he's not gay anymore. So, uh, but, uh, but yeah. Um, Sorry, I got sidetracked thinking about Milo. Uh, but in any case, um, yes, it's all very believable. Um, but deplatforming doesn't work, right? Deplatforming makes, you know, like like that's that's a gift to the right wing. Um, you know, look look at how afraid the left is of our ideas. They won't debate us because you know they know that we, you know, they'd be destroyed. They, you know, they 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 try to stop us from speaking. You know, because because our dangerous ideas are so powerful. That's the whole metaphor of an intellectual dark web, and so we're just reinforcing that, right? And I think that was part of his. Uh, uh, you know, I think that that was uh, that was part of his. Um, uh, you know, that was part of Michael's point. I don't think it was his whole point, but it was part of his point. But also, like, I think to get a sense of, of what he's talking about there, um, watch watch Natalie Wynn, you know, ContraPoints' uh, video uh, canceling, right? Look at what happened to her. I mean, like, that that seems pretty authoritarian to me. The idea that you're going to have these, like, super strict... Uh, in-group taboos that are so strong and and they're sort of coming up with new ones all the time. And I understand every culture has taboos, blah, blah, blah. Uh, sure. I, I think that's all beside the point. I think even people who, who emphasize that sort of know it's beside the point. But like the more that you have... Um, uh, sorry, there's a question that made me laugh. I'll put it up in a second. Uh, the more taboos that you have and the more quickly they multiply and the more intense and harsh you are about people who are seen as breaking them, yeah, that does start to get pretty authoritarian. And I, I think that the I think that the sort of mob denunciation of contrapoints um, that you know I think that's an example. Uh, so I think I think watch that video to start to get some sense of what he's talking about. Uh, Think about the fact that his hero Adolf Reed uh, was was uh, disinvited uh, by by New York DSA, uh, you know, 
not that long, you know, before he wrote that, uh, you know, because even though uh, it's a predominantly organization, Adolf is a black man who grew up in the Jim Crow South. You know, he's he's accused of being a class reductionist who doesn't care about racism, uh, and uh, and and you know, and it was like, you know. People would say it's like, oh, this is terrible that Adolf Reed is going to come talk to us. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody had a right to come speak to any organization. Nobody's saying that. But the point is that a mindset where you say, oh, even this guy who Cornell West, who's often debated Reed and disagreed with him about various topics in the past, they've had huge debates. But uh, but Cornell West, like said after DSA, you know, canceled uh, Adolf Reed. This is absurd. This this man is like one of the greatest socialist scholars of like in the last generation. Uh, and, and the fact that that's like too much, that sort of mild disagreement is too much. We can't hear it. Uh, I think that that's, yeah, I think that does show a certain kind of authoritarian mindset. And yeah, that, that might be a critique that you're used to hearing from, from the right, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. And I also don't think that, that it means, I think that the fact that we're used to hearing the right weaponize this critique for their own purposes doesn't mean that leftists should be, you know, hear no evil, see no evil about it. I think it. I think it means the uh, the the opposite. Uh, I, I um, you know, I, I think that the fact that our enemies get a lot of mileage out of something probably shows that it's it's a, you know, it's it's a weakness that they're exploiting, and and we should try to we should try to repair that weakness. So, so no, I don't. I don't think Michael was moving to the right at all. I think that he. I think that he correctly saw that shit like this, you know, this kind of like uh, woke moralism and sort of censorious canceling kind of mindset that this this shit, you know, is what. It's not the only thing. Maybe it's not even the main thing, but it is a thing that makes us lose. And I think he really wanted us to win. That'll be my take on that. All right. Uh, Wicked Energy, thank you so much uh, for the super chat, brother. Says, will you react to Kant versus Rin rap by Rucka? Uh, I understood what all of the words meant <laughs> until the last couple. Uh, this is a video that I'm not familiar with, but you were nice enough to do a super chat. So uh, if you if you DM it to me on uh, on Twitter, I will I will I will watch it and I will consider. I will consider whether there's something to that I could react to on YouTube. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that too. I mean, I think that I think that both are true. I think that it's I think that it's toxic on a strategic level. Uh, it makes it very difficult to appeal to the great mass of, of ordinary people we have to appeal to in order for a socialist political project. And when I say ordinary people, it's not a dog whistle. That doesn't mean, you know, cis, at white, anything like that. That means people of all races, all backgrounds, all cultures, sexualities, just people who aren't obsessed with politics. That's what I mean by normal people. Like, I think it makes it much harder to, to reach out to the great mass of normal people that we have to reach out to, you know, to have a successful left project. And that's the point that I usually emphasize because I, I think it's it's one that a lot of people on the left can kind of immediately see. Uh, and that, I think, orients the discussion where it should be oriented. But I think it's also true that this is a terrible, toxic way for humans to interact with each other. And there would be more than good enough reason on in and of itself to critique it. I mean, I 
in in my in my book you know the new one i i have a um line in there i talk about the movie ladybird there's this there's this great um scene you know where the title character is uh you know not ladybird johnson but a, a teenage girl calls herself ladybird uh as um her high school boyfriend is this like Chomsky re leftist. And, you know, she, she starts to tell him about, you know, the problems, the relationship. And he's like, you know, a million people die in Iraq. And she says, yeah, more than one thing can be bad. Uh, and so it's like, yeah, the fact that this is a terrible way for humans to interact with each other would be a good enough reason to critique it by itself. More than one thing can be bad. But then if that's the only critique you make, then what the conversation gets turned into is, oh, so you think that people screaming at Natalie Wynn on the internet is worse than, you know, whatever, police brutality, imperialist wars, union bust. And it's like, no, I don't think it's worse than any of those things. I just think more than one thing would be bad. But I think one way to cut through all that is to focus on the, the strategic dimension. That's, you know, that's usually what I do. But I also think the more visceral human critique is also important. Oh, uh, <laughs> sorry about that, Nick. Uh, thank you for the super chat. Let me see if I can find your original Linda LaRouche question. Uh, let's see. Let's see. <sighs> okay. It was Ben. What's your take on Linda LaRouche's socialism? Uh, not good. <laughs> I'm not going to try to do that in the Trump not good voice, but uh, not good. Uh, Lyndon, uh, Linda LaRouche uh, was a uh, – he's dead now, right? I think he is. Yeah. So Lyndon LaRouche uh, was a crazy person uh, in the late 20th century. I hope that's, I hope that was the first sentence of, uh, of, of his like obituary in the New York times, you know, Lyndon LaRouche, whatever date, whatever date, uh, a noted crazy person of the late 20th century. Uh, so he was, um, he started out certainly as a socialist. I think he actually started out as a member of the communist party and then he became a Trotskyist. And then as Trotskyists do, you know, Trotskyist organizations tend to split apart and, you know, turn into new organizations a lot. And that happened. And he had his own, like, it was originally just like yet another little weird Trotskyist sect. I say this with love, Trots, but you, you guys do tend to, to split apart a lot. And um, his was called like the National Council, National Congress of Labor Committees. I think that's what it was. I know it was NCLC. Uh, and, um, and, and he ended up turning a really weird direction. I mean, he, I mean, I, I think it was a, I mean, I think that was basically a cult, like in a pretty literal sense, like uh, that, like sort of psychologically abusive in a way that got a lot of people to stick, stick to it out of blind loyalty, even through some pretty dramatic political turns. Right. So uh, he had, uh, LaRouche, um, I think back when he was still saying he was a socialist, but he decided that the existing left, uh, was, uh, was a big obstacle to the breakthrough of whatever kind of, you know, labor party he saw as emerging or whatever. And he went in this super weird direct, like he, and he literally like started organizing like physical attacks on like the communist party or whatever. And uh, I think it was called operation mop up. And then he, he just went in a weirder and weirder direction as time went on to the point that by sometime in the eighties uh, he'd stopped calling himself a socialist. He was actually like a Reaganite conservative and uh, eventually, yeah, I think he was pro Trump. Um, uh, somebody in the chat said he was also pro China. I don't know, you know how that works, but maybe 
and and he was also this giant conspiracy theorist that he thought like the queen of england was was somehow conspiring with like cocaine cartels and also the trilateral commission to do i'm not quite sure what but somehow it was going to crash the world economy but lyndon larouche's warning stopped it from crashing the world economy so yeah i think that like probably out of out of socialist figures to uh, to emulate you know lyndon larouche would would not be on that list uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh you know who's right there with with jerry healy uh who was uh the the leader of the uh workers revolutionary party in the uk which is the uh the, the social party that vanessa redgrave was part of who ended up uh literally selling intel on libyan communists living in the uk to the Gaddafi regime uh so just another you know amazing human being that the, uh, the left has produced um probably out of the ones who haven't held state power, uh, LaRouche and Healy are, are two of the very worst. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, Yoda, thank you so much for the super chat, says when the ideology is 11 people is too organized, it gets you away from the class, you tend to fracture before state power. Sorry, not sorry, trots. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Like, and again, my, my point is not to, to shit too much on, on Trotsky's here. I actually think Trotsky was right about a lot, right? Um, although I kind of, I remember a friend from central New Jersey DSA telling this joke years ago. You know, there's this famous line from Gandhi where he says, I like your Christ more than I like your Christians. And I think she she adapted and said, I like your Trotsky more than I like your Trotsky's. But yeah, I think, I think that Trotsky was right about a lot of stuff. Uh, like a lot of like really important stuff, even not everything, but a lot of stuff. Um, and, and I, I don't generally use, you know, Trotskyist as a, as an insult, you know, I mean, I think it was good that if nothing else, you know, at a, at a very dark time in the 20th century, you know, he, his followers were, you know, correctly opposed to the kind of really monstrous perversion of socialism that had grown up in the Soviet Union at that time, uh, while also, also being implacably opposed to capitalism and imperialism and fascism and all that stuff. And he was a very good writer. I mean, it's worth reading. But uh, but yeah, I think that also this idea, you know, that he was going to start his own little international, the Fourth International, which was always tiny and marginal, you know, and almost almost everywhere not quite everywhere but almost everywhere um and you know and that like you know he got into a lot of like really bitter like feuds with people who he agreed with about a lot and a lot of that i think set a very t bad template for his movement afterwards but yeah exactly uh i i agree with that rich and you know, he offered a critique of stalinism from the left and that's valuable in itself um yeah exactly all right. Uh, to do. Uh, not familiar with that. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I'm not as familiar with that side of Murray Bookchin's uh, work. Um, I've read a little bit of Bookchin, and I know a little bit about Bookchin, and you know, I think there's some interesting stuff there. But I also think that he underestimated the. I think he thought. Like sometimes you read Bookchin and you get the impression that at least at a certain point he thought that post-war economic boom was going to last forever and that basically in Western countries, 
the working class was always going to have this kind of level of material comfort and economic class struggle wasn't going to be the sort of primary driver of, of future left politics. And I think he was just wrong about that. Ah, let's see. Um, scroll through. Yeah, I don't really have a, a worked out take on the Belt and Road stuff, but um, but absolutely. I mean, the U.S. clearly needs to work with China on climate change and, and you know, various things, right? I mean, I think that that's a lot of what Daniel Bessner's work has been struggling with. What, like, kind of if, if, if Bernie Sanders had been elected president, if, or, you know, imagine an even slightly better version of Bernie Sanders, whatever, you know, Bernie Sanders with like a more robustly Chomsky, you know, foreign policy. Um, what, um, and, and the left were suddenly in a position to decide American foreign policy. What would that look like? Uh, Cause there are some conflicting imperatives, you know, between kind of left internationalism where we want to stand in solidarity with oppressed people in other countries. And also cases like fighting climate change where even some very oppressive governments, I mean, you know, we clearly want to, you know, work with them on these areas of common interest and we, certainly don't want a new cold war with china you know which would be disastrous you know i mean we've already gone too far in that direction um so so what does that look like and i think daniel has some some really interesting things to say about that ah let's see um find some other questions Okay, that's interesting. So, uh, Sean uh, says Cornell West and Sylvia Ann Hewlett wrote a book called The War Against the Family. Rabbi Lerner in The Left Hand of God argues the left should be more pro-family to support non-market values. Yeah, I mean, I again, I'm not familiar with that specific book, but, um, you know, I, I think... Um, I mean, I talked about this a little bit in the second clip I showed on the on the show on Monday. By the way, sorry about the technical difficulties there. We cleaned it all up in the podcast version, if you want to listen to it like that, from the stuff, the problems from the live YouTube one. Uh, but, um, but he... But, yeah. Uh, but, but I got into it a little bit um, in the Q and a discussion with Michael from Idaho. That was the, the second clip we showed on Monday. And, and what I say then is pretty much what Michael himself said at various points later. I think there's something like this in the last chapter of against the web, the cosmopolitan socialism answer. And there's also, um, and you know, I talk about it in, in that article, the cosmopolitan socialism of Michael Brooks. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, it depends what you mean by pro family, right? Like, Obviously, and I'm sure that Cornel West and Rabbi Lerner and all these people don't think anything like this, but like sometimes when people talk about being pro-family, what they mean is that like they want to like impose traditional family structures on people. And obviously that's something that we should reject categorically. Everybody should be able to live however the hell they want to. I mean, you know, John Stuart Mill's thing about experiments and living 
you know, I, I mean, my, my take has always been, and, you know, I know what Michael said some places was that this is, uh, you know, like part of the promise of socialism is, is fully funded experiments and living that we can actually give people the economic freedom to, to live however they want. You know, right now, all too often people, either are too financially stressed to hold together relationships or they stay in bad or even abusive relationships for financial reasons or healthcare reasons or other things like that. Um, so um, I think that, um, yeah. So, um, so whereas under socialism, you know, we could actually have like experiments and live in for real, you know, that like uh, that, that people could be freed from some of those financial stresses so that they actually could decide to live however the hell they wanted to. Uh, so obviously, you know, obviously we're not, you know, again, I know Sean and Cornell West and West co-author and Rabbi Lerner. I know none of these people have that view, but I'm just saying just at the outset, in that sense of pro-family, no, of course not. Um, but is there a sense in which the left should be more pro-family? Yeah, there is, right? And uh, this actually kind of ties into the authoritarianism question too, uh, because um, if you go back, like, if you remember like a month ago, uh, Elizabeth Brunig uh, wrote a article for the New York times. It was called something like, you know, I had kids young and I don't regret it uh, where she was talking about, you know, having uh, her, her first child when she was 25, which is not even young to have kids by like normal people standards, but it is certainly young by New York times columnist standards, you know, by, by the standards of middle-class media professionals. Uh, and, uh, and so part of it, you know, was, you know, she wrote it, I guess it was a little longer ago. Yeah. Cause this was for like mother's day. Uh, she, she wrote it. Um, a lot of it was just a very sweet, very human piece about how having kids, you know, changed her and how valuable the experience was and, you know, all good, positive human stuff like that. And then, and then part of it was like, oh, by the way, uh, this is why the government should give more, you know, economic support to, you know, to help people, you know, uh, you know, raise the kids, you know, uh, you know, state sponsored daycare, child allowances, all that stuff. Right. And, um, and it was like something that I think no, like sane, thoughtful leftist would disagree with even a single sentence in that article. It was great, but you had all these people on Twitter who were reacting to it as if she was advocating that the United States adopt the laws of the, you know, Republic of Gilead for the Handsmaid's Tale that like, Oh, you know, this is like Phyllis Schlafly or something. Uh, because I think some people have this kind of knee jerk reaction to talking about the value of families and doing more to support families and all that stuff. It's very, very unhelpful, right? You know, just sort of automatically seeing that as some sort of anti-feminist or, you know, heteronormative, whatever kind of point. And, um, and clearly like, yeah, I think people should be able to live however they want to, you know, I mean, if you want to, you know, if you want to live, you know, be, a, you know, have a devout, uh, you know, devout Mormon, you know, nuclear family. Great. Do that. Uh, go for it. You know, as long as you don't try to impose on anybody else, you know, absolutely. I, I think you should be able to do that. If you want to live on a, you know, trisexual Wiccan compound. Great. Do that. Uh, that, uh, you know, but 
most people, right? Not everybody and and everybody has to, but you know, most human beings like families, like having families, like, like, like being able to, to raise families, support families, all that stuff. And there's a certain strand of, of the socialist tradition uh, where, you know, so this goes back to a couple of, I think, very misunderstood lines in the Communist Manifesto, but, you know, maybe maybe not misunderstood. I mean, maybe there's a strain of this sort of like, you know, radical free love stuff in, uh, in Marx and Engels, but there's certainly a strain in the socialist tradition that's like, oh, yeah, the family is this like, you know, bad traditional thing that will like overcome. And I think that's super duper unhelpful um most human beings want to have families uh politics should be about enabling people to achieve what they want out of life uh and so i think it should be yeah you know again want to have a traditional family great go for it want to have a non-traditional family great go for it you know want to live by yourself in a cabin in the woods great go for it but uh but but the the point should be to make it economically easier for people to pursue whatever they want to pursue which again for most people is having families um and yeah i would say some of the some same stuff about you know certain kinds of I mean, I think nationalism is very bad, but, uh, you know, obviously the left should be a nationalist, but I think having a sense of fondness or connection to the place that you live in is not bad. And I think we, I think we, um, I think like denouncing that is, uh, is, is a real mistake. And I think like treating certain kinds of imagery as if they had like essentially right-wing meanings, I think can be a mistake too. All right. Um, uh, what's Prakyan Lodor uh, says, uh, what's your take on standpoint epistemology? I thought Michael Brooks was critical of it. Yeah. Um, it's in a, in a, uh, in a van, in a van down by the river. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, sorry. Um, standpoint epistemology. So I want to be a little careful about this for a couple reasons. Uh, I think that one of them is that I don't want to, you know, because I of that academic philosophy background and, and people know that about me, I don't want to say anything that would be taken as like, I'm, going hard at something that people actually say in the philosophical literature, because that's not necessarily the intended target of the critique. Uh, I don't, you know, it, it might be possible that there's some like narrow version of something called standpoint epistemology that you could academically defend. And I don't necessarily have a huge problem with, uh, but, um, but I think that, um, Yeah, I think that uh, certainly when it comes to like folk standpoint epistemology, right? Like what uh, Matt Bruning uh, calls uh, identitarian deference, um, you know, which is roughly the idea that like uh, anything that has to do with sexism, you know, you you're, you just have a automatically more correct perspective on because you're female or, you know, you, 
all men should defer to like what women say about anything that has to do with sexism or all white people should defer to, you know, to whatever, you know, black people say about racism, etc. Um, I think that, um, I think that that's totally wrong. Like, I mean, I, are maybe not totally wrong. Like, like there's a, probably a defensible germ of truth buried in there, but I think that the left ODs on it and, uh, and there's an exaggerated implausible version of it, uh, that, you know, it was way, way too much. I think, I mean, this is something I said the very first time I was ever on TMBS in studio, uh, that I think we need to back off of a uh, standpoint epistemology and, and yeah, Michael talked about that too. And, and yeah, I mean, that, that, that's still, that's still my view. You know, I, I think that, uh, like for one, one thing, I think that, like the standpoint of epistemology, certainly in that, again, certainly that kind of folk standpoint of epistemology, that identitarian deference, that Matt Brunig is talking about, which I see all over the place, right? Like, and that's that's pretty, and not even just on like the left, properly speaking, but like, you know, I can think of times when in like class discussions, when students have said things very much like this, I think it's a very culturally widespread idea. You know, you see cable news pundits saying things like that. And yeah, certainly all over the place on the left. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I think one huge problem with that is that, uh, and this is going to sound kind of funny to say, but I think without this assumption, it makes no sense. You know, oppressed groups are not hive minds, right? Like you say, oh, we should, we should defer to, um, you know, we should defer to black people on anything that has to do with racism. Um, great. Which black people, um, Liberal black people, centrist black people, uh, Marxist-Leninist black people, uh, conservative black people—they exist. There are way more of them than you know. You might like to admit. Uh, I, you know, I know the percentage of black people who vote for the Republican Party is very, very low because the Republican. But a lot of that's a function of the way the Republican Party, since Nixon, certainly maybe since Goldwater, has kind of become a party of white identity politics. Um, and, and really panders to a lot of white backlash. I think a version of if we had a conservative party that didn't have that strategy, I think there would be a lot more black people who'd vote for it because obviously there's going to be a segment of, you know, black people who have politically conservative views. I mean, that's, you know, uh, they, there are um, uh, like, and there's something weird and racist about the idea that there is a singular black people perspective. Uh, Toure Reid, uh, Adolf, Adolf Sun, uh, has a great line about how, you know, there are more black people in the United States than there are people in Canada. And nobody would ever think, oh, there is a single Canadian point of view on any political topic. Say, oh, non-Canadians should just defer to what Canadians think. Well, nobody would ever say that because we would all take it for granted that Canada is a complex society divided into different ideological factions, different social classes, different religions, different et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that, uh, that, that all, um, you know, that, that all disagree with each other. Um, yeah. Pascal is, is great about this and many other topics. Um, and, uh, and so because we take it for granted that, that, that Canada is a complex society where you have wild disagreement between different political parties, different social classes, different, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We wouldn't talk this way about Canadians, but somehow we talk that way about black Americans, even though it's a larger group. Uh, because, and this is again, go back to Adolf Reed. This is essentialism, right? You know, we think there's this like particular essence 
of blackness or, you know, or, or femaleness or, you know, gayness, whatever, uh, that, uh, that, that is everybody in the group is going to have in common. That's going to dictate what they, what they think. And it's just nonsense. Uh, you know, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, that of course, you know, you'd like, you know, you're just, even when it comes to the sort of core, uh, core issues, uh, yes, I indeed say that. Uh, and yes, I, I agree with that right there. Um, watch, watch this is revolution. Listen to this is revolution. Uh, Jason and Jason and Pascal are some of my favorite people on the left. Um, definitely some of my favorite podcasters who didn't, uh, come out of that, you know, sort of TMBS, uh, extended podcasting universe. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think that, um, Sorry, yeah, I, I think that um, even when it comes to, like, think about gender, like, even when it comes to as basic an issue as abortion rights, Matt Brunick makes this point in his Identitarian Deference essay, yeah, there is a gender gap on abortion rights. There are more men than women who are pro-life, and there are more women than men, you know, who are, who are pro-choice, but the gender gap on abortion isn't anything close to as big as you might think it would be. Um like, yeah, most women are pro-choice, but it's it's not like 90-10. It's like 60-40, if that. Uh, and it's not uh, it's not particularly difficult uh, to imagine uh, cultural shifts that turned the, you know, the female population from being 60-40 pro-choice to being 60-40 pro-life. At that point, does listen to women, you know, uh, defer to women on anything that has to do with gender and sexism mean that we should all become, uh, you know, we should become pro-lifers. I, I certainly hope not. Uh, and, and this is, this is the core of Brunig's point that even makes sense of identitarian deference in, in light of the fact that obviously LGBT people are not a hive mind. Black people are not a hive mind. The half of the human race that's female is not a hive mind, etc. Uh, the only way to hold on to this kind of identitarian deference in the face of that is to decide in advance, which are the people who are the real spokespeople for that group and that everybody else is just, you know, a sellout or, you know, or a, you know, a pawn of, you know, an oppressor group or something like that. It's, it's a stupid way to argue. It's anti-intellectual. It makes us, uh, it makes us dumber. It, because it makes it, we get into the practice of having to argue for what we believe by just saying, oh, we can just defer to people. And it's a double-edged sword. This is the point that I made in that first TMBS appearance. Um, I have, you know, whenever I make this point, I always think about the, uh, you know, the tears in the rain speech from Blade Runner. You know, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. I've seen things <laughs> people wouldn't believe. Uh, you know, I've, I, I've, I've met you know, people who are like basically like woke liberal Zionists uh, who said that, uh, you know, oh, we shouldn't have Gentiles saying that being, you know, anti-Israel is an anti-Semitic, you know, because Jews should decide uh, what counts as anti-Semitism. I've seen, um, I've seen like the, the wealthy children of right-wing Venezuelan emigres 
uh, who, you know, went to Oakland College or wherever the fuck and picked up some woke terminology, uh, you know, saying, you know, like when when they're defending like the Guan Guaido attempted coup in Venezuela, and oh, I'm so tired of white leftists Venezuela explaining to me. Uh, this is, um, uh, yeah, neither of those are DSA examples, by the way. I've got my criticisms of DSA, but by and large, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also a member of DSA. Uh, several DSA chapters have been kind enough to invite me to come to talk to them about my book, and I'm always happy to do that. Um, you know, so so nothing, you know, no shade on DSA. Uh, you know, I, I think that I think some of the pathologies of the left show up in DSA because, of course, they do. It's the largest socialist organization we've had, like, since I don't even know the 1940s. Uh, but um, but I think um, you know, but that's the the point is not to bash them anyway. Um, so. So, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so these examples, yeah, neither really academia, academia nor DSA, like like people, you know, just people on the internet or students or whatnot, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and we could roll our eyes at those examples, but what is the difference, right? Because, like, if we say, oh, no, 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 but, like, Sure, uh, some Jews say that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, but other Jews don't say that. You know, uh, what about your, you know, Noam Chomsky's and you know, and 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 your, you know, Glenn Greenwald's, Norman Finkelstein's, and you know, I'm, I'm not just gonna sit here rattling off, you know, prominent left-wing Jewish people, uh, but um, <laughs> you know, but I think that, uh, but I think that the. But it's clearly true that, you know, probably, you know, a majority of at least, you know, people in what's sometimes called the Jewish community, you know, have at least somewhat pro-Israel views, you know, so so why not, right? I mean, what what's the rule that says that's not a group that we need to defer to? And yeah, I mean, you know, some 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 Venezuelans are reactionary and you know pro Guaido and whatever. You know, why shouldn't we defer to them? We say, oh well, there are other Venezuelans, probably more, uh, you know, who who are pro Maduro, or even if they're even if they're they're anti Maduro, certainly at least not like pro restoration of what existed before Chavez. Uh, and um, you know, but again, like that move cuts in all directions. I think we just have to kind of cut out the whole business. None of this is to say there isn't a germ of, of reasonableness buried in it because, you know, it is oftentimes worth, you know, I don't think that being a member of an oppressed group gives you any like special insight into like a sort of theoretical analysis of that oppression or political strategy for what to do about it. I think most people are equally clueless <laughs> regardless of their identity characteristics about all that stuff. Uh, but, uh, but the, uh, but, but it is, it is legitimate, right. That when it comes to certain kinds of experiences, right. Like that sometimes, you know, like it, you know, white people, you know, like if you're white and you hear about some like experience of people being mistreated because of racial prejudice, 
you know, by the police or in a job application or whatever, that, that some way people might be really eager to be dismissive of that because it hasn't happened to them. And so it sounds implausible. And I think it is worth doing that kind of mental exercise where you, you, you check yourself and you think, well, okay, is it possible that this is something real that I just haven't bumped into and that because it's outside of my experience that I'm being too quick to reject it. Obviously that's a correct instinct. And, you know, maybe that even applies, you know, in more complicated and interesting cases. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think that it's certainly the case, uh, you know, Devin's talks about the intimacy with that stuff. And that is certainly right. I mean, um, I was just reading G.A. Cohen's book, um, If You're an Egalitarian, How Come You're So Rich? And in the second chapter, third chapter, something like that, it's called Memoir of a Montreal Jewish Communist Childhood. Uh, you know, he, he talks about the experience of, you know, pretty open anti-Semitism, you know, back, back in that historical period and uh, when he was growing up. And he says that, yeah, that there is, there is a difference there is a kind of knowledge of what racism is like that you don't get if you haven't experienced it. And I think that's totally right, you know, but the distinction I would make is between what intimacy with that stuff will give you is a better, I'm going to do a really nerdy analytic philosophy thing here. Forgive me, but I think this is actually helpful in clarifying. Uh, I think that, um, that, you know, Bertrand Russell makes a distinction between knowing that and knowing how, and, you know, he's got knowledge by acquaintance and knowledge by description and all these different things that knowledge can mean. Uh, and it's certainly true that that kind of intimate acquaintance with what racism or sexism or homophobia or any of these other toxic, awful prejudices are like can, can give you a sense you know, like that's a real kind of knowledge that that knowledge of what it's like, of what something is like, and that's something that absolutely. I mean, if that's the kind of knowledge we're talking about, then yeah, standpoint epistemology is just obviously correct. Uh, but um, but if what we're talking about is not like that kind of what it's like knowledge, that knowledge of of what it feels like to experience uh, that kind of oppressive treatment. If that's not what we're talking about, if what we're talking about instead is a theoretical analysis of where it comes from, or, you know, kind of strategic analysis of what to do about it, uh, or even a sort of uh, moral judgment about which of these things are more important or whatever. I don't think that that what it's like knowledge necessarily gives anybody any special insight into all of that stuff, uh, which you can tell. Because go back to the fact that oppressed groups are not hive minds. Clearly, if it does, that insight is very unevenly distributed because you have wild disagreements within every oppressed group about all these things, all of which is just to say that if you want to figure this stuff out, you can't turn off your brain and just try to defer to somebody with firsthand experience. You have to actually think about it. You know, you have to <clears throat> give them an argument. <sighs> oh, that's cool. Um, do you mean from when I was on the majority report like earlier this summer, or did Sam say something about me? Just vaguely curious. Um, I, uh, I am a, I'm a fan, but other, other than the, you know, don't agree with him about everything, but I'm a fan. And, uh, you know, he, he, the man, uh, the libertarian debates alone, you know, uh, 
but but I you know I don't know him very well you know I mean he was on the show once and I was on I was on there and you know I was on there well I was on the majority report three times but the first two times were were Michael only um you know I was on the majority report with Sam you know once and you know and uh, so anyway just just vaguely curious you know uh if it said something about me on the show uh but um yeah, I mean, I don't think academics necessarily are likely to have have a good sense of these things either. I mean, I think most people, whether they're academics or non-academics, are pretty bad at thinking about political strategy and theoretical analysis and all that stuff. Um, but I mean, sometimes the lived experience stuff might give you a sense of what works because you've actually like seen it work. But just experiencing terrible conditions by itself, I mean, I think, you know, if you've worked at an Amazon warehouse that might give you a certain visceral sense of why we need socialism, but that doesn't necessarily give you any special insight into socialist strategy. That'd be the analogy. Oh, well, that's nice. Hmm. Yeah. That actually cheers me up a little bit. <laughs> Thank you for passing that on. Oh, all right. Um, uh, yeah, no, that lived experience can be very helpful for, right? Like if you've been to protests and you've seen how the police react to it and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Would not dispute that point. All right. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a question about dietary stuff, vegetarianism, veganism, all that. Um, I don't answer that stuff on air. I think it's a little unhealthy that some people on the left have this sort of obsession with the kind of like lifestyle critique. I mean, it's not that I don't have my own views about that, of course, right. As a person, I've thought about that and I, I do, but uh, you know, I, I try to separate that out from, uh, from, from political discussion. So if I'm ever in, uh, in your town, you know, whenever the book tour happens, if it does, or for the next one, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm, or, you know, if we ever start doing GTA live shows or maybe GTA slash left reckoning joint live shows, I talked about that with Griscom once, uh, you know, buy me a beer and I'll tell you what I think about that. But, uh, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that one on air. Uh, ah, cool. I will check that out. All right. Let's see. Do, do, do. Yeah. Yeah. Jason and Pascal are very good on this stuff. All right. Well, Hey, this is actually, um, yeah, I think I've already answered this one. Although if you feel like there's a part of your question that has kind of remained unanswered, let me know and I'll do my best. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, what is your opinion on whether young marks and mature marks are compatible? Oh, that's an interesting one. This is going to sound like a lame cop out, but I think it really depends on what dimension you have in mind. I mean, I think broadly, yeah, for sure. Uh, but I, I also think that sometimes some Marxists, you know, so, I mean, I know there's the view that it's like, okay, like there's some, a certain kind of Marxist humanist view that says that like young marks is this like totally different kind of thinker from old Marx. And I think that's probably wrong or almost certainly wrong. Yeah. No, almost about it. That's just wrong. Uh, but, uh, but 
I think some Marxists go too far in the opposite direction and say that like they kind of act like, you know, one day at, um, you know, one day, you know, I don't know, like he was a left Hegelian and then the next day, you know, he just somehow like, you know, like all of mature Marxism was just beamed into his brain and he never evolved his opinion on any issue ever again. And that's, that's clearly not right. I mean, he obviously, his views evolved and changed in various ways over the course of his life. Um, although sometimes, sometimes the views themselves, sometimes in response to changing conditions. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of good examples off the top of my head. I mean, I think certainly some of the social strategy stuff, although that's also confusing because um, like in the Communist Manifesto, he just talks about winning the battle for democracy, kind of achieving political power. Famously, after the Paris Commune, he says, oh, this, this, you know, the lesson is, um, you know, this is like, you know, we're wrong in the manifesto to act as if we could just seize control of the existing state. We have to like smash it and have a new state. But then like at the same time that he's saying that, like almost literally exactly the same time, like 1872, if you read his uh, La Liberté speech to the first international, uh, he, he says that in uh, countries like the U.S. and the U.K., uh, socialism can come about through this like peaceful electoral process that, you know, that, you know, socialist parties, you know, workers can just vote a socialist party into power and, you know, and it can carry out its program that way. He still thought that there would need to be, you know, violent revolution in, in European countries that were ruled by monarchs. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, so how do those two thoughts fit together? The state smashing and the electoral path to socialism? I don't know. Uh, I I know Hal Draper has a book about Marx's conception of the state. I have not read, uh, but um, you know it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question. And you know even in the I should say also that you know he he did still worry that even when you know this kind of you know peaceful democratic transition to socialism he thought was made possible by advances in democracy, he still worried that capitalists would respond to socialist government coming into power you know, more or less the same way that slave owners had responded to Lincoln coming to power, um, which is obviously not a totally unfounded concern. I mean, that that's pretty much, you know, Chile in, you know, 1973, for example. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess to try to succinctly answer, the, I think what you're asking, I think in the broad strokes, the sort of later economic analysis, the more humanistic concerns, the early marks. I don't think any of that is incompatible. I think that's all, you know, certainly at least compatible with each other. Um, not that, you know, all of Marx's views are, you know, you can, you know, they're detachable. I mean, you know, you, you have to argue about it a la carte. I don't think he was right about everything. I think he was right about most things, but I don't think he's right about everything. But, uh, but yeah, I think that answers that question. I uh, should say... Uh, I think the Afghanistan question was, uh, is China going to have more of an influence in Afghanistan if the U.S. pulls out? Maybe. We should still pull out. Um, yeah. I don't even know what this is about, but it's kind of funny to see it in the chat. Uh, let's see. Um 
yeah, I think that's probably true, at least on some issues that his later work only clarifies and refines his earlier work. But look, I mean, does he literally never change his mind about anything over the course of writing thousands of pages over the course of several decades? You know, probably not, right? Um... Oh, yeah. So uh, Eric asked, he once recommended a book on here from G.A. Cohen for doing a good job summarizing Marx's interpretation of Hegel. What was it? Because I forgot. Uh, it was uh, Karl Marx's Theory of History by, by G.A. Cohen. Uh, the, I think what I was recommending was the first chapter, which is really on Hegel's interpretation of history. But then he gets into how that you know, influences Marx and how, how Marx sees all of that, you know, later over the course of the book. But the first chapter is amazing because he really does do a remarkable job of sort of distilling what Hegel's saying into very clear arguments, you know, which is a, which is a feat. Um, he also has some interesting stuff to say in, if you're an egalitarian, how come you're so rich uh, about Hegel and Marx, but I'm not totally done reading that one yet. Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, if people have suggestions for that, put it in the chat. You know, uh, that that that's a good one to have an answer to. Uh, I I mean, I think that you can sort of. I mean, obviously, if you're talking to somebody who's willing to do a lot of reading, you know, we could recommend some things by Marx they could read. But like, in terms of an easy, accessible popularization saying here's what Marx thought, here are what some of the myths are about what Marx thought. I'm not quite sure off the top of my head, but it's a very good question. I should have an answer to that. Um, yeah. How much do I read? Uh, a little bit. Um, I mean, I don't get as much reading in general as I'd like to done right now, but you know, I'm, I'm not like, you know, I think obviously, yes, by training and inclination, my preferred way of doing philosophy is very analytic, but uh, that doesn't mean I, I try not to be dismissive continental philosophy. I think that like there are different styles of philosophy. There are good things and bad things about both of them. There are continental philosophers that I really like, uh, or, you know, even if I don't necessarily agree with them out of everything, that I think they have, like, valuable and interesting, you know, things to say and they're worth reading and thinking about. Um, you know, Nietzsche, despite some of his right-wing views, I, I, I think is, I, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, impeccably continental and a really good writer and somebody with interesting insights. Uh, you know, Sartre, I talked about... Um, talked about him with David Griscom, you know, on, on the show recently. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I like Sartre a lot. Uh, you know, Slavoj Žižek, uh, who, by the way, is going to be back on the show, I think in like maybe late August, early September. Um, and he has a piece in Jacobin today. You should check that out. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think Žižek has a lot of interesting, insightful things to say, even if sometimes I'm not sure what to think about some of the Lacanian stuff or whatnot. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think you can get a, I think, I think basically, yeah. I think that what you're missing, if you like, I think like there's a sense in which you can get that philosophy education, you know, just with the library card, basically. 
or you know the uh <laughs> uh you know or 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 pirate bay maybe uh but um i think what you're missing is like the interaction uh you know not just with instructors but with other students that like i think that is a really valuable part of the way you you learn about philosophy in college but i don't know that you know especially now online you know you know there might be substitutes for that to be found i mean obviously i think that there's something incredibly valuable about the kind of classroom experience for that if you can get it but you know but i, I think uh, i don't know maybe i'll <laughs> uh i i have definitely toyed with the idea of teaching more online philosophy classes you know outside of a university setting so you know maybe i can help out with that a little bit at some point uh but you know but yeah i i think you can i think i think you can definitely be a philosophy auto you know dictat uh just realized oh no i autodidact autodidact that's the word i was looking for in fact a lot of you know really interesting figures in the history of philosophy were you know so so yeah i think that's definitely possible all right Oh, that's fun. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think Aristotle's probably right about more stuff, uh, but for writing style, certainly Plato. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm actually trying to get some of the dates <laughs> uh, for for some later philosophers straight in my head to see if see if they're gonna <laughs> gonna fall within your uh, your your date range. So let me think about that. Uh, let's see. Do -do -do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is definitely right. Uh, our graphic designer J. Andrew World says. Uh, you'd read more if your short streams weren't two hours, by the way. I keep those super chats coming in. Uh, yeah, if there are any last-minute super chats, I will certainly answer those. But uh, otherwise, um, uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, I think I will cut this off because I was actually planning to only do about an hour, and, and this has already been two hours. <laughs> so uh, I, should, uh, I should probably go. Uh, there... Um, there will be, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a better way to manage all the time commitments. Uh, it is a work in progress. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so let's see. Coming up, uh, there will be uh, some sort of... Um, Philosophy Friday with Jen on Friday. I've got an idea for that, but I don't want to say until I'm, I'm, you know, talk to her about it. I'm sure that that's what we're going to do on Sunday for the Sunday night debate breakdown uh, with uh, Conrad Hamilton and Matt McManus. We are finally going to finish Zizek versus Hanan. Hanan, I guess is how you say that. Not Hanan, probably. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we're going to do part three on, on, uh, on Sunday, you know, inshallah, we'll finish that thing. And then on Monday, uh, since we have already done in the past a uh, Sam Harris is wrong about everything episode and a Jordan Peterson is wrong about everything episode. So it seemed unfair to uh, to leave Ben Shapiro out of it. So on Monday, we're finally doing 
a Ben Shapiro is wrong about everything episode with uh, Nathan J. Robinson and uh, and uh, Gene Bajalon uh, should be a lot of fun. Uh, the a week from Monday, by the way, uh, there's going to be a uh, the the main guest is going to be there for a debate. Uh, he's going to be, I think he was like the libertarian candidate for governor in New York. So that one should be fun. Uh, yeah. I don't know what binary economics is. I'm not familiar with that term. Sorry. Um, so uh, lots of, uh, Oh my God. I, okay. Um, yeah. Somebody asked me earlier and I totally forgot about it. Um, what my favorite season of the Sopranos was. And uh, that, that is a tough one. Um, like it definitely wouldn't be season one. Cause I love season one, but it's also like the show is kind of getting its bearings and figuring out what it is. Uh, the, the one uh, with like Ralphie is like the main conflict. Um you know, the, he disrespected the Bing, you know, that season. It's definitely a contender, but I don't know if that's my very favorite. I actually thought it got really good in the last couple seasons. But, yeah, let me let me think more think more on that. Um, so, uh, so, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for the super chat, Joshua. Says, no question in particular. You've already answered at least one of mine. Thanks for the stream. So, thanks everybody for the good questions. Like I said, we went way longer than I thought it was going to tonight. Uh, so, uh, lots of good stuff coming up. Oh, I should also say that drop in for uh, patrons tomorrow, and there'll be a preview here and a preview on the um, on uh, on the podcast feed. Uh, we have um, uh, we're going to uh, yeah. So the the patron episode this week is uh is going to uh is going to be my conversation with uh jacobin staff writer luke savage about uh he, he wrote an article called uh uh something like james carville is still wrong about everything you're you know james carville has always been wrong uh so uh so my my conversation with luke savage about james carville is coming out for patrons uh tomorrow speaking to the patreon uh, if you like the work that we do here, uh, five bucks a month, uh, you get uh, the weekly uh, bonus episodes on Thursdays. You get the weekly, you know, patron exclusive post game after the regular episodes on Monday nights. Um, you get access to the Discord server. Lots of good discussions in there. Uh, you uh, have uh, early access to uh, the monthly Sopranos recap bonus episodes with Nando and Waz and Mike Racine. Um, and, uh, you know, we always unlock those eventually, but, you know, you get them early if you're a patron. Uh, you, uh, you also get uh, Discord movie nights. I'm thinking for August we might watch the young Karl Marx for that. Uh, and, um, and we have not done one of these in a little while, but we'll schedule another one soon. Uh, Discord office hours, uh, group, uh, group voice chats. So uh, lots and lots of, uh, of good stuff there. And most importantly, again, solidarity support what we're doing here you know i mean I'm, I'm i'm trying to transition you know next month into making this my main job uh you know go down to just you know i'm gonna try probably hold on to one one class as an adjunct but other than that you know 
I'm out, right? You know, this is so I can I can focus all my energy on this. So uh, so yeah, please do consider supporting us uh, by joining the Patreon uh, if uh, if you can. Uh, I think I actually missed this, but it sounds like uh, Jandra World was on Varn Vlog uh, tonight. Uh, so um, which is a very good channel. Uh, our friend and comrade C. Derek Varn from Zero Books does again Varn Vlog. Uh, v V A R N space V L O G. Uh, so, um, so yeah. And, and if you had a, if you had a conversation with Andy, that's definitely something you should check out. Uh, and, um, yeah, sorry about that. S scout is taken. Uh, if, if you ask your question real quick, might get to it in the last 30 seconds before we go to the outro music. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm not gonna look, I come out of TMBS. I think about Mr. Door exactly what you'd expect me to think, but I, I mean, I think that, you know, getting sucked into the endless cycle of Jimmy said something dumb or offensive and, getting mad at that and people getting mad at the first group of people, you know, it's, it's something that I think is, is probably probably all, we're all probably better off with less of stuff like this. Uh, I will say that obsessive AOC hatred always seems weird to me uh, that um, it's, I mean, she's a politician. Most politicians are mixed bags, you know, except of course for my, my beloved grandfather, Bernie Sanders, who's perfect. Uh, but, um, you know, I've got my criticisms of AOC, right? I, I certainly think they're legitimate criticisms of her, but uh, she's obviously much more of a positive than a negative from a left perspective. You know, she advocates the entire Bernie Sanders agenda. Um, you know, she, uh, you know, she, she shows up for, for picket lines, you know, during strikes, uh, of course, of course, she's a net positive, uh, and and kind of obsessively hating on her always strikes me as like a sort of weird way of like, well, I'll, I'll put it the way I put it on social media earlier today. I mean, it's a it, it strikes me as a weird and slightly gross algorithm pleasing way of posturing about what a hardcore real leftist you are without having to actually say anything of substance, and uh, and I don't like it. You know, and I, I think that in general, right, I mean, I, even if it's more positive, I mean, the idea that like, you know, Congress, you know, uh, Congresswoman from the Bronx, you know, good or bad is about like what half of left media is about now just just seems very strange to me and, and very unhelpful. You know, don't do that. Right. Be better. So anyway, um, yeah, theorizing with a hammer. That's also Varn got to have him back on this show soon but in any case um yeah i don't know uh obviously having michael brooks on the uh the brain right now um you know and I, I think that's as good a place as any to end it i mean thinking about all of the endless you know aoc discourse and the you know jimmy door versus whoever discourse and you know and all that stuff you know i i I mean, we got to, you know, left media is not an end in itself. It's something that's supposed to serve the end 
of building left politics in the real world to change material reality. And to the extent that left media figures become the story, something somewhere has gone wrong, right? That shouldn't be the focus. And, uh, and yeah, I mean that, that line, you know, that line for Michael, right? Like that, that definitely is, I mean, that, that's a ra- definitely a recipe both for a version of the left that's just much more tolerable in human terms and much more strategically effective. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you can definitely do worse than that as advice. Um, be, uh, be, be ruthless with systems and kind to people, um, you know, which is really a, a pretty basic um, – Yeah, it's a pretty basic Marxist point too, right? Like it's, it's. I mean, in a way, it's sort of a very Buddhist kind of point, you know, or spiritual kind of point, but it's also very, very Marxist kind of point, right? Like uh, the problem isn't individuals. The problem is, you know, bad systems, bad structures, much more than it is bad individuals. Um, you know, you're, you're going to get a range of human behavior and and, you know, selfishness and cruelty and all that stuff under any system, but I mean, the fundamental problem is not, you know, people having bad thoughts in their head. The fundamental problem is material reality and, um, you know, and, and the sort of structures of, of our society. And, and if you find yourself nodding along with that in the abstract, but in practice, uh, going, um, in practice, like, you know, you're like, yeah, 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 of course, structural, blah, blah, blah. But then like what, you know, what you really get it up for, right? What you really get excited about in practice is uh, hating on individuals. You know, you're doing something very wrong. And, you know, it's it's certainly not Marxism, It's it's it, but it's also like forget Marxism. It's just not like, it's just not a vision of politics that I have any interest in having anything to do with. Um, don't do that, right? So do you know, do better, <laughs> you know, be, uh, be more of a mensch and you will probably, uh, and, you know, and, and stay focused on talking about how your program is going to help people's material needs. And you're probably not only is that better and more admirable on a human level, but you're going to win a lot more people to your politics. So there you go. Um, you know, be, uh, you know, don't like, if you're, screaming at people on youtube all day about you know about how they're sellouts you're doing something wrong if you're you know if like half of the things you say about politics start with did you hear what you know dumbass jimmy Dore, whoever said right you know and 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 obsessively hating him then you're doing something wrong uh focus you know like like you know focus your energy on on changing those material structures and yeah i mean i think the uh the be kind to people part is important too so there you go that's that's my uh there endeth the sermon uh uh see see you guys on uh, friday for philosophy friday with jen uh sunday for the sunday night uh debate breakdown and then for the regular show with nathan robinson and gene bodgelon on monday left is best <laughs>